I heard a joke once. Man goes to doctor, says he's depressed. Life seems harsh and cruel. Says he feels all alone in threatening world. Doctor says treatment is simple. The great clown Pagliacci is in town. Go see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears. But doctor, he says, I am Pagliacci. Good joke. Everybody laugh. Roll on snare drum. Curtains. Hey everybody, I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we watch maligned movies and we find their silver lining. And uh, Joel and I today are answering the age-old question, who watches The Watchmen? We watch The Watchmen. Yep, it was us. Uh, it was us. We were, we were watching The Watchmen <laughs> the whole time. It was me, Austin. <laughs> it was me all the time. Uh, oh, man. Uh, yeah, so we, we watched The Watchmen. The yep. movie. We should clarify that in case anyone is confused. Yes, the movie. This, this is not the, the Damon Lindelof television show from last year. This is the 2009 Zack Snyder adaptation of the graphic novel. Watchmen. Watchmen. By D David Gibbons and no one else. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Right before we did this, I got an email from Alan Moore asking him to take his name off of our podcast. Just preemptively. Oh, he just, he didn't want a part of it. He just had a hunch that we were talking about it. So he's like, but that dude's a like, wizard. He can sense he when people he's, are about to talk about him. He might be watching us right now talking about the podcast, about the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also not I the heard a joke once. A uh, man goes to doctor. Says I'm depressed. Doctor says, read comic book by joyful man Alan Moore. He cries. Says I am Alan Moore. <laughs> oh, that was good. Thank you. Um, no, and it's also not the weird motion comic that was on HBO like a long, long time ago. That's oh, like, yeah, yeah. They just kind of flash animated some of the panels of the comic and it's really and it's just one guy's voice the whole time. It's like. It's like neither an audiobook nor a cartoon, but the worst of both. So it's not that either. <laughs> Sometimes this does feel like someone is just flashing a panel of a comic book, but we'll probably talk uh, about that. More. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, this is uh, as we close out Snyder Month. Uh, this was Zack Snyder's first foray into superhero comics. Uh, his second foray into adapting comic books slash graphic novels. Uh, but this is The Watchmen. And uh, I believe his second foray into, you know, in incredibly chiseled shirtless men, you know, so after 300. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, there had to have been someone chiseled and shirtless in, Day, in uh, Dawn of the Dead. Maybe one of the zombies was real ripped. I don't really yeah, remember. Yeah, maybe. I but, don't know. But yeah, for, for sure, we, you got Manhattan. On full Manhattan display. is, he's just shredded. That, the... Uh, <laughs> The mo the mocap actor is just shredded. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So this is kind of so we we are jumping back, but it, it sort of made sense because well, and also there's a bonus week. Uh, there's five weeks instead of four, so we were trying to figure out 
uh, what to do with this week. But we wanted to do all of the, uh, you know, DC Extended Universe ones specifically. And then this, um, I'm sure no one <laughs> wants to hear about the ways that uh, I'm sure make Alan Moore sad that now the Watchmen are actually part of DC's continuity. But uh, for the most part, in, in their official history and the way they originally attended, this was never meant to be part of the larger DC universe. Uh, and in fact, it was meant to be a commentary on superheroes and the genre and a lot of things. Yeah, uh, maybe and we'll almost talk- more specifically DC comics more than Marvel comics. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think the a lot of the archetypes you can see are... I mean, Manhattan... I think we said this in a previous episode. Manhattan is for sure superman one-to-one <laughs> like, yeah and i mean like if you split batman's personalities you get rorschach and night owl yeah like night owl sort of represents the technology part of batman for sure and and i mean it also depends on yeah i guess which version of batman but sort of maybe the earlier batman the very tech heavy and then rorschach and the campier it, yeah rorschach is more the like what Batman has increasingly become, I think. Like, Batman's future, I think. Yeah. He's a little bit more the Frank Miller Batman. And Night Owl is more like the 60s sort of bright-colored Batman. Not quite the 60s TV show, not quite that far, but... Yeah. More in line with, like, the 60s, like the 60s, 70s comic book era Batman. Yeah. And then all of this is sort of, uh, you know... I don't want to like it's a satire I guess right is it do you think that's the right word is that the word you would use of of the genre yeah I would say it's satire and not parody because I think you can be satirical without being funny and this isn't funny no it's not funny but it's definitely I mean because you know in a lot of versions maybe increasingly explore it too but the you know I mean it's just sort of playing with the idea of what would a God, how would he view humanity? You know, a man who could do anything. Right. You know? A and, man with literally no limitations. How would he relate to humanity? That is all limitations. Yeah. And how would a man with just a very black and white version of morality, what would he be as he wandered the streets and fought crime? <laughs> right. So, yeah, there's that. I don't know. I mean... And, and what would a guy who had a football-shaped ship do? Yeah. These are questions that have plagued this. Also, like, Ozymandias, I always kind of took him as Lex Luthor, right? I mean, that that feels... Even though he he starts as a hero, that, that feels like what they're going for. He has some Lex Luthor vibes. He has some Tony Stark vibes. He has... And he's almost the third side of Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, where like the but isn't that Lex Luthor in a lot of ways? I mean, in a lot of ways too, it is. I mean, there's definitely you can definitely draw the comparisons. Yeah, and then I don't really know. I mean, there's not like a clean like Wonder Woman to Silk Spectre or anything. No, you know, on that side. But and if if anything, the comedian is more in the line of like the Punisher or someone like that. Oh, I definitely get that. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the war vet guy who has no problem pulling the trigger. And he's sort of a commentary because comics got substantially more violent in the 80s when this was released. Um, And because this is set in 85, but it didn't come out in 85. Is that am I correct about that? Yeah, I think it was a little bit later. It was like late 80s, like 89 ish, something like that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, throughout the 80s, like you look at Daredevil, you look at Frank Miller's Batman runs, you look at um, 
a lot of comics got a lot more violent. And I think he's a commentary on that where he sort of had this saccharine image as the comedian, even though he was always a violent bastard and then slowly became like became more violent until he became the full on, you know, shoot first, ask questions later, gung ho vigilante type character. Yep. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, it was, yeah, it was 86 and 87. I double checked, but it's when okay. it came out. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of, you know, and also this, this, I guess we should say if maybe people don't know this and maybe everybody does know this, but it's a very beloved comic book series that turned graphic novel. It's one of the only comic books to like actually make like literary lists, you know, where it actually gets recommended. Like Time Magazine did their hundred best works of fiction of the 20th century and this was on it. Yeah, so it it sort of transcends comics in the way that it's discussed. Uh, usually in people's at least top ten, you know, if not top five of just favorite comics. Like it, it comes up a lot. It was very influential. It changed the business in a lot of ways. Alan Moore's work was in general is very. Impactful. Here's a fun fact. Yeah. Uh, everyone's favorite font, Comic Sans, mm-hmm. based on the text used in Watchmen. Yeah. No, I mean there was a lot of stuff, and it. It's such an interesting comic, and I and obviously we're talking a lot about Alan Moore, but I definitely don't want to sell Dave Givens short, who was just as impactful, uh, and the art is great throughout Watchmen, mm-hmm. and also one of the things, and I think this is going to kind of lead into talking about the movie a bit, and maybe a bit about Alan Moore's feelings on his adaptations, is I feel like we should stay at the, say at the start, the Watchmen, the graphic novel as it exists, is not... You can't adapt it. It's unfilmable <laughs> in the form that it is presented. Uh, there's it's a lot of uh, tangents. There's a lot of experimental storytelling for a comic. There are full pages of text with like no graphics on them. It's it's very experimental jazz comic book storytelling. And again, it was serialized. So you can kind of see it in the movie where. You know, they try to do the Rorschach stuff. They try to do the Manhattan bit, but those were individual comics. So it made more sense being serialized. Like it's not a cinematic, you know, one complete overarching story. It's a lot of tangential stories that lead to something, which is a lot of how comics work. And and I think the danger of trying to adapt something directly and faithfully is that oftentimes <laughs> comics aren't written that way you know they and increasingly any sort of big comic book event is probably takes place over five or six different you know uh st- books stories you know with different characters and there might be a different character's point of view for that part it's just they're usually very hard to make anyway and i think watchmen particularly there's a lot of what people love about it is you know there's like this pirate stuff in there or there's like a lot of time spent with a boy at a newsstand, you know, reading comics. And there's a lot of ancillary characters that are like having conversations and, and a lot of stuff that you just can't put in a movie because there's not room for it. Yeah. There's like this ultimate cut. That's something like four and a half hours long. And it is the best version of this movie. Um, You know, it still has this, it, all the flaws that the theatrical cut has, it still has, but it's able to flesh out the world and, and wink and pay homage to the comics in a way that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, this you could I think there's a shot 
that you could have done this as like a, a limited series. I think it would have worked better. Like if it's, this was, and maybe even increasingly now in a world where, you know, the Mandalorian and, and other shows like that sort of normalized the idea that, you know, there might be an episode that's only like 30 to 40 minutes long. But if you did this as more of a, a limited series where if you approached each issue of the comic as its own episode, you'd probably get closer <laughs> to what was intended. But to, yeah, because this movie is um, a shade under three hours, like two hours and 45 minutes. Um and like I said, the there's the ultimate cut that actually puts in all of the pirate comic book as an animated feature. Uh, and, you know, it has the two the two guys at the newsstand and, you know, has a lot of the other sort of color of the world. Uh, and it's it is the like I said, it is the best it is the best version of this movie. But it's still I mean, some of the flaws that I'm sure we're about to talk about, uh, you know, we're still still very present. And I'll, I'll just say as a disclaimer, I've never seen that version, so I can't speak on it. <laughs> I've never seen the longer cut. And you don't need to. But the DVD was, or the Blu-ray was cheap, so I bought that version. Yeah, the pirate stuff's sick, though. Like this, the, this. Yeah, the pirate stuff is dope. <laughs> uh, uh, and in the in the in that version, Gerard Butler does the narration for it in his full Scottish brogue, so that's pretty great. That does sound pretty great. Like, it's it's exactly what you want. <laughs> All right. I mean, I'm not going to watch but I'm it, saying, but. If, but if you like, you want Gerard Butler narrating a pirate fiction, like yeah. if you have a choice, Obviously. like that's who you want doing it. Yeah. Any pirate um, fiction. I don't even, if they want to recut the Pirates of the Caribbean with him as a narrator, I'd watch it. Yeah, I I would. <laughs> Goonies? You want to get him up in Goonies? I'll watch it. Yeah. You want him to revoice uh, Sloth? Let's do it. That, you know what? I would, hey, I you would. guys. <laughs> <laughs> baby Ruth. <laughs> it's a oh. baby Ruth. Oh, man. It's beautiful. I think I think Sloth might finally get his due then because he doesn't, you know, he was the heart and yeah. soul of that movie. Oh, he was. He was he was the emotional center for sure. Uh, but let's. Yeah, and let's... my favorite on screen adaptation of Superman, just to tie it back to this month. Yeah. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. Um, they should bring back so, that Superman shirt suspenders look for, you know, whatever the next, you know, they announced there's actually a new one that J.J. Abrams and Tanisi Coates are working on. So I, I think it's a good time to bring back the T-shirt suspenders Superman look. Yeah, why not? Um, I want J.J. Abrams to do less things, but this is. A but I love Tanisi Coates. So it's. I love Tanisi Coates is great. Yeah. yeah no, so it, it is truly. <laughs> It's truly that comic with the two buttons, you know, where you're sw the guy sweating in the super. Yeah, no, it, it it is that meme, a hundred percent. And I really like Mission Impossible Three. Yeah, it's almost as good as all of the Mission Impossibles that came after it. But it's better than the ones that came before it. That's true. I mean, it is the foundation. That dude is good at. Look, I'll say this since we're tangentially, we're going off on a thread, and it's fine, but. Uh, since we were we're talking about something that that sort of relates to Damon Lindelof, I'll just say it for the record. I'm sure J.J. Abrams will come up again. Dude must be amazing in a room pitching. And he's real good if you need to launch a cinematic universe or like a franchise. Good dude. Knows the pieces that work. Knows how to make things start exciting. Do not keep him around till the end. 
<laughs> no. You got to yeah. bring someone else in who can stick the landing. He's he's the concierge in the lobby, not the guy in the penthouse. <laughs> yeah. He's also the dude on a plane to Tahiti with a suitcase full of money while the other people are trying to piece together what he wrote. Like, I love J.J. Abrams, a lot of the stuff that he's done, but they're usually held together with duct tape and popsicle sticks. You know, they're, yeah, they're all just sets instead of actual buildings that can just easily be pushed over as soon as he's yeah, gone. It, it's it's absolutely Rockridge from the end of Blazing Saddles. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, yeah. But no, his, yeah, his... Also, he wrote one of my favorite movies. One of his first scripts was regarding Henry, which is great. That's a great movie. Yeah. yeah He's done great. good work, but... Oh, yeah, he he has. No, there's yeah. no doubt about it. But he did um, Damon Lindelof dirty. I'll just say that for the record. <laughs> uh, so, speaking of Dave, Damon Lindelof, did an excellent Watchmen TV show that you should watch. Uh, but we're not talking about that TV show. We're talking about the movie. Yep. Um, so... I think I want to start here, even okay. though it's at the end. Oh, are you going to talk about my biggest gripe with this movie? Maybe. I don't know. Go ahead. We'll see. We'll see if it's um, by it is. There is something about this movie that I I will malign, but I it, it comes at the end. So you, this might be where you're going. All right. Well, I don't know. I figure let's start big and maybe we'll work small. Maybe we're shooting our, our shot too early. But hey. That's what we do here. We, we aim big. We watch movies that people don't want to rewatch and we find the silver linings. So uh, I will be the first to agree with the fact that books, plays, movies and comics are all different media and have different devices that work narratively. Mm -hmm. That being said, uh, I still get incredibly irked when things get changed for no discernible reason. Mm -hmm. I think we're heading towards the same. <laughs> and the big climactic change here from the comic book to the movie is sort of the master plan of one Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt. Um, in the movie, he makes it look like Dr. Manhattan destroyed like five cities. Yep. And as a result, the world is going to unite against Dr. Manhattan, who is American mm -hmm. and is a, a tool of American global politics and diplomacy, mm -hmm. well established in the movie. Yep. But but no, I guess because he blew up New York, too, they're all, the humanity is going to unite against Dr. Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes no sense. Nope. In the comic book, mm -hmm. it's super weird but there's a giant, uh, what everybody assumes is a giant extra-dimensional squid, which was just a genetic engineering project that um, Ozymandias teleported into New York, yep. killing millions. So the idea is he, in the comic books, he gets the world to unite against what they believe is a global threat. Like that there is someone from another planet coming to attack us, so therefore we all need to... Put put aside our shit and get ready for this, you know, space invasion that's happening. And also just like that would be shocking, even in a world where Dr. Manhattan exists, the confirmation that there are extraterrestrial know, life forms. Yeah. So it I that's exactly what I was hoping you would bring up. And that's my, exactly my biggest gripe with this hashtag release the giant squid cut. Uh, yeah, it's it's better because it, we had a chance to watch in glorious high definition 
a you know on, on big screens in 2009 and on our TVs now a giant squid <laughs> fall into New York and we were deprived of that and I think we're all the worse for it it was a giant squid it would have been really great to see and in fact not going to keep talking about it this is the last time I'll mention it hopefully but like they do the giant squid happens in the Lindelof more recent TV show and right. it's the better for it yeah the Lindelof TV show is very much a sequel to the comic book and not to the movie. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, it's, I, I'm totally with you. One, it's just, it would have been fun to get to see the squid, but two, this, I'm with you. This premise is sweatier that, you know, that by blaming it on Manhattan, that America will be safe, you know, like that. Yeah. It's this guy is viewed as America's shield and so if he goes rogue and starts killing everybody, that in theory would just make everyone even more angry at America, not... Right. Know. And the other thing, and the reason the squid works better than what they did in the movie, is that... Like, Dr. Manhattan is a known quantity. They mm -hmm. know his capabilities. They know that he is literally unstoppable and at will can destroy whatever he wants. Part of what also makes the squid work better is that it is literally the unknown because it appears and immediately dies. Mm -hmm. And so it like creates tangible proof. So everyone thinks that there is this extraterrestrial life. And um, actually, in my world history class today, we were just talking about how um, a frequent event that unites people is against a common enemy. Mm -hmm. Like most nations are usually founded by you. Uh, disparate people uniting against a common foe. Uh, today we talked about uh, all the various uh, Russian groups uniting against the Mongols, but um, yeah, and that would that that is the type of event that could unite humanity, and it was done much better in uh, the Tim Burton classic Mars Attacks. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, but anyways, no, but that's I, that's the biggest thing because I would say, other than that. From like a plot beat perspective, it's about as faithful as you could do with this movie in two hours and 42 minutes. Well, it's just weird to be that faith because if anything, I would argue maybe this sounds counterintuitive, but I hope people can can understand what I mean. In some ways, I almost think it's too faithful of an adaptation of the comic mm -hmm. book. And yeah, probably, no, I agree. Probably needed to streamline things and tell a cleaner story than the comics did in order to make it a movie. But yeah, I, this is a big thing. It's the climactic event. It's what people who know the comics were expecting to happen. And it, I think it becomes that thing, too, of if you're going to change something, especially something as well known as the ending of one of the top 100 pieces of media out of all time, according to uh, time or whatever, like it shouldn't it should be better than what happened. <laughs> and I think you can pretty definitively say it's less you know it's it's not as in it's not as fun it's not as interesting it doesn't make as much sense storyline wise because another part of the thing with the squid too is that manhattan's gone like that's part of what it also unites everyone is like even if there were like a race of giant squid showing up to to take on earth well we have dr manhattan he can protect us you know but he's he right. doesn't care he's on mars he he right. he's out. abandoned humanity yeah so, you know, which was part of the plan, like that, that was factored in to 
you know, this plan was to get Manhattan out of there and then do this. So, yeah, I agree. Not as good. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, no, it is the biggest problem. I guess you could argue, but the movie didn't make this point clear enough if that's what it was trying to get, was that like all the things that caused Manhattan to go away that were basically the same in the comic as in the movie, you know, Manhattan getting blamed for giving people cancer and, you know, just causing a lot of problems. Like, I guess you could use that as the inciting event for why he turned on humanity, but they, they don't make that clear enough for that to be like what it is. Yeah. And I, and I don't know that people, in the world of this story would be able to make those connections because we're as the audience privy to a lot of things that they don't see. Right. Almost everything. Yeah. So they're only really seeing like his television appearance and then he disappears and then, you know, this happens. So they wouldn't really know where he's at. And a reasonable amount of time later. It's not like he disappears and then moments later everything gets destroyed. It's like... Yeah. No, he's gone. It's it's several days, if not weeks. I mean, the timeline is a little fuzzy for yeah. a lot of reasons in this. But um, but yeah, I think, like... I, I think it's, it's always a cool, like, Easter egg, fan service, whatever, when comic book panels show up in reasonable facsimile on the screen. Like it's, it's, it's something every, literally every comic book adaptation has done. Well, and there are things that I think you would expect to see if, if they're, they're tapping into a story, you, there, there's an image that if you read the comics, it comes to mind. And some of the ones that, you know, I think jump out too are like the dark Knight rises when they did that. You know, if you knew the nightfall storyline, the poster nailed it and there's the shot in the movie of like you want to see bane with the smashed uh cowl you know like you want to see that on the ground bane like kind of leaving the broken bat you know or and you want to see him do the backbreaker and you want to see him do the backbreaker you want to see him lift batman over his head and snap him over his knee which all of those happened uh, in that movie, it, it Raimi is Spider-Man. You, he says, I'm Spider-Man no more and throws the suit in a trash can in an alley in a way that looks exactly like an iconic um, panel. I'll still I love Raimi. I love those movies. Still mad we didn't get Face the Tiger, You Hit the Jackpot, which is the panel I want recreated. But, you know, that's that's me. But yeah, no, that's me. That's me, too. That's one of the greatest like reveals of all time. Yeah. One of my favorite. Even, like, comic, yeah. Even in like a lesser movie, like the uh, the Affleck Daredevil, which could very well be a future piece of fodder for this show. Yes. Uh, I'm amazed we haven't gotten there yet, but, you know, I'm, we I'm sure we'll find a way. Yeah. Uh, but like there's a really great panel when he's sort of like just hanging on a cross on the church and like sl- overlooking the city. And it's very faithfully created it. And, you know, we could go on and on and on. It's something that happens, but it's done so soullessly in this movie. Yeah, and I I think I I will make the argument that it holds this movie back because there are a number of times where in the service of recreating a panel from a comic book to actually do that in the real world in the scene screeches the brakes on what's happening and it all looks really wooden and inorganic and like kills the momentum of the story to like, there's a lot of weird blocking in this movie and a lot of weird 
people trying to like it it feels when you're watching it like the actor is looking at a comic book page and trying to pose as a model for it instead of acting and that's not good no it's it's almost like the uh the short form improv game slideshow where you have the whole cast like kind of form in a pose and like hold it for a second and then describe what's happening it's yeah like there are a couple like i think um Silk Spectre and Night Owl kissing in front of the mushroom cloud like that's just that made that work. That was one that worked. Well, that's also going to work. That's great. Yeah, definitely do that. <laughs> but when you have, you know, like Rorschach crouching outside of the windowsill, that looks great in the comics, but it looks weird in practice. It looks weird for him to hold there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it looks like he's trying to pose for the comic book panel instead of moving fluidly like a human would. <laughs> Right, because even the Spider-Man No More thing, it's not just a still of Tobey Maguire, like, freeze-framed walking away with the Spider-Man in the Spider-Man suit hanging out of the dumpster. Like, you just see the action of it. And if you were to free, you could freeze-frame on the actual panel, and but everything it, yeah. moves fluid through it. Yeah. And that's why that works. And um, the Rorschach one is, I think, the big example that doesn't... Um, but there are other ones, too, where yeah. they're just trying to... You know, yeah, it just ends up feeling very forced and and taking you out of the story instead of, you know, enhancing the story. It's not a silver lining, but one recreation that I thought did work uh, when Rorschach kills the psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, and and how they, they show it with the door, like kind of flap the, the the swinging door sort of flapping in and out. That was something. But that was kinetic, right? Like they did it kinetically the way that. You know, the, the kinetic movement that was implied in the comic was actually created on screen. And it yeah. worked. I also think they do some good work with the the smiley face button in the beginning yeah. of the movie. They, they do that pretty well. And I even like the way that it changes from the very, like, yellow, just the color yellow, if you were to Google the word yellow, into a color that matches the color palette of a Zack Snyder movie. I thought it like that actual effect yeah. of sort of it almost draining of the color looked really cool to me. Um, The other thing I think is, is weird for this movie uh, is that they brought to life shoddily made wax dummies to play real figures from the 80s. Yeah, I I specifically wrote in my notes, and I was not going to get past the maligning portion without specifically mentioning their Nixon is bad. Like the voice is fine. Yeah, but it's it's not even like the voice is good enough to justify how not much not like Nixon. <laughs> the guy neither looks nor sounds particularly like Nixon. Yeah, it's and also just, I'm. I, I don't know if that is it Billy West. I don't even know who does the voice, but whoever does Nixon in uh, in, Futurama, in Futurama, just slap a fake nose on that person and just have yeah, him play put Nixon. all the prosthetics you put on the guy you use for this movie. Yeah, I don't think it's Billy. It might be Maurice LaMarche. Maybe it's LaMarche. Yeah, I'm not sure who does it, but whoever does it but in it, that or show. It actually might be Billy West. But either way, like that would have been a better choice. Yeah, I know whenever I do a Nixon impersonation, that's the Nixon I do. Oh, it's what I hear in my head first. Yeah, for sure. Is that and like, it's, that's what I. You, like you forget he doesn't sound like that that's how good that impression is <laughs> yeah i mean it's obviously very exaggerated but this has the opposite problem which is that it's so i don't even know if understated is the right word. it just doesn't particularly evoke nixon and you can do stuff i thought frost nixon 
hit that sweet spot of like, because that's Frank Langella, right? I think that's yeah. playing Nixon, where he's not doing an impression of Nixon, but he's evoking enough Nixon while just playing the role really well. And I think that mm-hmm. works. You know, you get those examples of stuff like that. I actually think Bruce Campbell was a really great Ronald Reagan in the Fargo TV show and not being yeah. like a one-to-one. But you can do these sort of, you know, homages where you're sort of evoking something about the person but i don't like this this nixon and he's in it a lot just doesn't he doesn't work he hinders the movie (laughs) no it it, it, it's it immediately breaks your suspension of disbelief yeah immediately like you and this movie i think especially the opening i think you can argue about the slow-mo speed up Zack Snyder fight choreography style, but I think it does a good like a good job of bringing you in that opening scene. Let's but save the opening for the second half of the show. <laughs> well, there's the other part of the opening that's absolutely in the second half of the show. <laughs> I was just talking about um, the fight between oh, the oh, shadowy yeah. figure yeah, yeah, yeah. and gotcha. uh, the comedian. Gotcha. Okay, but yeah, uh, but that's where teaser. you first see Nixon. Yeah. That's where you first see like someone who's supposed to be uh, William McLaughlin from the McLaughlin group and supposed to be Pat Buchanan. And they just look like guys covered in silly putty and it's yeah. terrible. I forget that I recognize the Buchanan actor and now I'm not remembering who it was, but it was someone no. I had seen. In or John else. McLaughlin, not William McLaughlin, John yeah. McLaughlin from the McLaughlin group. But yeah, they, and that was part of the fun of the comics is that it was sort of using these real people. And yeah, it's a, it's a 1980s that takes place in a world where because uh, Dr. Manhattan was at the disposal of the U.S. military that uh, the, uh, America won the war in Vietnam and Nixon just stayed president. Past That them. they rechanged the Constitution for him to – they repealed the amendment uh, term-limiting presidents and he stayed in power. And, and Vietnam becomes the 51st state. Yep, that's what I was going to say. Yep. Yeah, so all of that happens in the comics and in the movie as well. No, the world building in the comic is fantastic. No, it really is. Look, if nothing else, and maybe this is a a silver lining, just read the comic if you haven't. It's it it is good. It's It's super hyped, but it lives up to the hype. You should read it at least once. I will. I will give a slight caveat to that. Um, Maybe during a global traumatic event like a pandemic is not the best time to deal with such bleak material, depending on what you're predilections are um because yeah. it is bleak it is uh, bleak. yeah yeah that's that's true <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna put that out because uh, one of my really good friends uh and she has a really open mind for material but she was like yeah i tried like I, I understood that i would love it but it was just too bleak and i was like yeah that makes sense um one other dumb adaptation thing that really it's like it's so small but it just bugs the hell out of me so in the comic book um, the way that people consume tobacco is weird and different. Uh, there are these weird, like circular pipes that like they put pouches of tobacco in. Like it's, it's just a new way to smoke tobacco. Right. And, uh, the Silk Spectre character is a smoker in the comic book. And so when she first goes on to the owl ship, uh, Archimedes, uh, night owl's owl ship, uh, what she thinks is the cigarette lighter ends up being the flamethrower. And she, you know, accidentally hits the flamethrower and sets like the workshop on fire. And it's, you know, it, it makes perfect sense the, in the movie. Uh, and I'm sure that this has to do with, um, you know, anti-tobacco lobbying and all that. But, uh, you know, and, and trying to limit the use of smoking in movies and, and all those things that I think are really good choices. 
Uh, she just is like, what does this button do? <laughs> and hit, and hits the the flame jet. And because it also sets up another gag later on where the way too long sex scene between Night Owl and Silk Spectre um, ends with the flame shooting out because um, someone hits the button in the throes of passion. Yeah. So it's like it's it's a payoff in the comic book and in the movie, but the way it's done in the comic in the movie is is it's just like makes Silk Spectre the dumbest person ever. See, it, and just, it just annoys me. It's like climaxing during sex. That's the, the flame is. Oh yeah, no, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. Like you know, like it's like it's it's orga- It's a, it's a metaphor for an orgasm. Mm-hmm. A, a very subtle one, but yeah, yeah. I, I um, will. I'll add to that too, just to say that. Another thing that was changed, and I think for the worse, is part of the idea with Dr. Manhattan in the comics was that because he existed and because he was godlike, that the civilization in 1985 was much more further along technologically. So there were electric cars, there was sort of advanced technology, and all these ideas of like these breakthroughs that had happened because of Dr. Manhattan and all of that's thrown out too. And that felt kind of weird to me to just not have any of that as well. And it, it, it could have been, it's not something you had to drive home. It's something you could have just done in the set decorating. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You just, it, it's not even a, a story thing. It's just a world building thing of just in the background, the technology should be a little further along. Right. Instead of being more true to the eighties and, I can see that. I could see how that could get shot down in a boardroom by someone not getting it. It could also just be expensive. (laughs) Okay. And and that would be one of the reasons. Yeah, I could see that. Or yeah, who knows? I mean, yeah, maybe someone thought it was too much or, you know, whatever. Who knows? But I it's a change from the comics that I I don't love, you know. That sex scene is bad. I don't want to gloss over that. That sex scene is ridiculous. It it feels cartoonish like it feels like it w- should be in a comedic movie like that it almost should be heightened slightly more and it should be leslie nielsen and priscilla presley like doing yeah the scene. it's um so the sex scene in the comic is like uh, there's like i think a scene with that like a panel with them kissing a panel with them clearly having sex and then the panel with the flamethrower i think mm-hmm. that's that's it it is like four minutes in the movie set to Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. And which, it is which graphic. Maybe, perhaps, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen is meaningful to you after last week's episode. <laughs> but for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Um, but yeah, it, it is just like, it is for a movie that's not where like sex isn't a centerpiece it's about as graphic a sex scene as has been put on in a movie in a long that i can remember in a long time well there's there is something going on in the comics and in the movie with silk specter and with the idea of i mean she's having emotionless sex with manhattan who's working in the other room and then uh they try to these two characters try to have sex uh but he can't sort of do it until they're superheroes so there is something that's happening with this that I I think you could make the argument is relevant to the story, but not enough to justify this scene. Oh, I would argue I think the sex scene makes perfect sense narratively. Yes. That's not but that's the not presentation what I'm arguing. of it. But the presentation of it yes. being 
form in it. And, you know, Malin Ackerman and Patrick Wilson are attractive individuals and, you know, great. But it is excessive. I will just say this scene, because again, it feels comedic, even though it's not supposed to be. I'm really glad Malin Ackerman's career uh, went comedic after this, that she's done a lot of really great work, like Burning Love. And uh, I think she's Children's Hospital, too, right? Like she. Yeah. Yeah. She's done a, a lot of stuff with the those guys, like the the state. Yeah. Guys. She's shown up in a lot of the, the David Wayne movies. She's yeah. in uh, Wanderlust and a couple others. Yeah. She's a really great comedic actor. <laughs> You know, yeah. which is no, not. I, I, I'm I'm a Malin Ackerman fan. For yes, sure. no, for sure. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think I just didn't want to give that scene too much of a pass. It's it's noticeably, and I, it's something that I I know is brought up a lot when maligning this movie. Specifically, people tend to point to that scene. Yeah, um, like the scene is such that you would think that the director was an exploitive asshole. Um, but that's not, doesn't seem to be the case with Zack Snyder. Yeah. I will say that all accounts are that Zack Snyder is a lovely guy. And, and you know what, since you said that, and I will, you know, this is, I think touchy too, but I, I do want to mention that I, I also feel very uncomfortable with the, the way the assault of the original silk specter is presented in this mm-hmm. movie, because again, it goes it's narratively important to the story but it it it's filmed in a way that is just uncomfortable and goes on longer than it should and is, it's it's the wrong kind of voyeuristic for the scene yes and I, I that that scene very much doesn't sit well with me either yeah um i also just this is a weird pivot from here, but I do want to say too, that something that maybe this is nitpicky of me, but because of the way the story is told in, in the comics, there's a lot about the original generation and then uh, the, the second generation of these heroes. And a lot of the stuff about the first generation was cut. And I, I understand that, but what's weird is they made this choice to cast younger actors and then age them up but the age makeup is not particularly good for those actors either and since it's more important and they have more screen time as older actors i just i don't understand why you don't cast older actors to play those parts and then just find a young because i almost think that there isn't much dialogue that happens when they're young so you could just find someone that looked like them as a younger stand-in and just find older actors or do better old age makeup but the and that's actually one of the areas where the extended cut is expanded they do show a lot more with the crime stoppers and things like that but i would still i would still agree even with the extended cut um it would have made more sense like the way that they have Stephen mccaddy play the old uh night owl one and they i think it's a diff completely different actor playing the young night owl like they should there's no reason they couldn't have done that the whole time yeah, maybe maybe you have the comedian play the same throughout, but you when could have he, had he he works you like for some when they age him up and down. It's not as noticeable. It, it really is. Uh, what is her name? Carla. Um, Carla Gugino, who I'm a yeah, huge fan of. I like I'm Carla a huge Gugino. fan of her, too. It's not on her. It's just. No, it's not on her at all. Whoever no. aged her up. It, she kind of looks like she's doing like a high school production. <laughs> You know, like it. No, it looks like the the grease paint lines that they do for old like old ladies. 
Yeah, it just um, is not very convincing. And I think that's really unfortunate because I do really like her as an actor. And I think they they did her dirty in this movie, <laughs> like in the way that she looks in the scenes. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey Dean Morgan for sure has one of those faces that like I feel like even now when he's probably he's got to be in his 50s, could probably play a get away with playing a 30 year old. <laughs> Yes, and or vice a versa. Old. And vice versa. I think when he was thirty, he could get away with playing. Could have gotten away with playing a fifty-year-old. Yeah, yeah. He just he has does an have one of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's great casting, by the way, too. Just to, oh, just, da- yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a nice segue to pivot, if mm-hmm. anything. Unless there's something else you wanna. Oh, just want to say, just want to say this, and this is probably more about the comics than the uh, the movie, but. You know, Ozymandias is presented as the most intelligent man in the entire world. And his password is something that you can guess by looking around the room. Like, Ramsey's 2. Come on. Come on, bro. Like, pick a better password, genius. Yeah. Just want to throw that out there. Uh, But yeah, I think a great place to pivot. I think this movie is really well cast, I would say. Yeah, except, look, I mean... I'm. Can I just say I don't I, I don't even know who the actor is. I didn't I don't think the guy who plays Ozymandias is well cast. <laughs> yeah, I can give you that one. Um it's Matthew Good is the actor. Yeah, I he's the one that stands out to me and it's it's this isn't his fault, but considering that Jeremy Irons played the part in the uh the other version that I said I wasn't going to talk about anymore. It's just it's such a pivotal part and he doesn't play him particularly in an interesting way. He just, I don't know. It, it it doesn't, the character feels flat to me in a way that is noticeable because I think everyone else is so well cast and like Jeffrey D. Morgan is really great. Uh, Malin Ackerman is great. Uh, Patrick Wilson is great. Um, I think just, it's a lot of maybe mostly voice work for uh, what is his name? Dr. Manhattan. Um, Billy Crudup. Billy Crudup, but he has a great voice. So it really works. I know he did all the motion capture yeah, and that was one of the cool technical things. And one of the it's it was weird reading about where they paid close attention to detail because the mocap suit he wear he wore was also covered in LED lights to light the scene as if the glowing Doctor Manhattan was there, and that looked really good in the movie. But um, I don't know, Billy Crudup, like, just does a great job of playing unaffected and like blase in a really interesting way which is a really hard thing to do yeah and like i said i think a lot of it and and i would guess why you cast him is because his voice while being flat is still interesting to listen to like it, it still has this melodic quality it's still it's soothing in its apathy <laughs> and i think that yeah that- it's it's there's this weird like emptiness to it but it also like like, it really feels like an alien who doesn't understand humanity trying to sound like a human. And yeah. Like, and I mean that in the, like, the most complimentary way. Well, that's what the part calls for. And that's like, what the part is. Yeah, no, that's that's dead on what the part is. Yeah. No, yeah, he, I, I think he did a really good job. And yeah, I was reading that stuff too, where apparently he did, he had to do acting with a motion capture suit with a bunch of LED lights on it and do all the blocking in the actual scene that's, that, that they filmed and then they replaced him, which sounds not easy. No, um, but no, I think I think Jack Earl Haley was a good Rorschach. Um, yeah, and I shout out to him particularly because I know that he was a big uh, fan of them making this movie. He's a big fan of the comics. He really uh, lobbied to get the part. Like he he came in very enthusiastic and he nails it. And I it, this was so pivotal to him too because it sort of let people see him 
in a new light after you know if you don't know him it, it's fun to look at his earlier work before this and realize that <laughs> this is a huge departure for him and he's really good at it yeah he's really really good um yeah and yeah like the 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 lead the sort of central cast i think is is great patrick wilson is a great night owl like he does a good job of playing like the kind of aw shucks quality that night owl has yeah and they it's funny because i've seen patrick wilson in so many things and they somehow just like you know tone what's the word i want to say they just like he's a very handsome very charismatic guy and they there's what the part calls for that he nails is just like they kind of give him this like frumpy sad quality that i've never seen him play in anything else but where he's just like where he can turn it on when he's called for like when he's being a hero but when he's just existing as a guy who's no longer this person in his day-to-day life he there's just like an inherent sadness that he there's has. just the schlubbiness that he just nails yeah and i, I really guy. do like that about his performance because he's he feels so pathetic like when when silk specter like first shows up on his doorstep and i don't know i i enjoy their stuff a lot actually outside of that scene like i i think their relationship and with Billy Crudup, like that really that love triangle is very well done. And probably my favorite aspect of this adaptation, like that I think all three really understand and play very well. Yeah. You want to talk about a scene that just absolutely gets nailed by these actors is when, uh, Malin Ackerman and Patrick Wilson go, uh, to the, their first dinner before she leaves Dr. Manhattan. And they're talking about like Captain Chaos or someone and how he would just like tell him like, <laughs> yeah. punish me. And then she's like, whatever happened to him? He's like, oh, Rorschach threw him down an elevator shaft. Yeah. And just the way it's played and the pause and the hold for the laughter and everything about it is just... Yeah, no, really, Malin really Ackerman. Well. That scene nailed. They nailed that scene. Yeah, her laughing and then calling herself out for laughing <laughs> at like, it. I is... shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> no, but yeah, they and their chemistry in that scene. Yeah, no, that is a really good scene. And it, it, it like, and it's it just it's so relatable because it's like you and your coworker that you haven't seen in a couple of years reminiscing about some weird esoteric bit that only you could have with your coworker. It's just, these people were vigilante crime fighters. And so that's their weird bit that only they can laugh about. Yeah. It's like, Oh, remember how on Wednesdays the coffee maker never worked. Oh yeah. Classic blah, blah, blah. It's the exact same tone in the scene. And it's so well done. Yes. Yeah. No, it, that is really great. Uh, I we teased it before, and I'll, I'll just bring it back now. The, Let's do it. The the times they are a change in opening montage that just Mwah. it's it's perfect. It's utterly it's perfect. like it is so good, and it it gets me hyped for this movie. Like it it nails it. It everything about it. It accomplishes everything it needs to accomplish. It looks absolutely beautiful. It's really fun. It's the exact right length. Everything they show is really cool. It's it's great. I I can't say enough thing great things about no, that, that sequence. That is it. It's yeah. No, it is absolutely perfect. For it does what it sets out to accomplish. It like it's a great mix of like freeze frames and movement and it everything about it and like the way that they sort of fold in the original Crime Stoppers into like the classic various time period photos and. 
and just yeah. how it goes through. Yeah. I do love that. Yeah. Everything there, you know, sort of counterintuitive to what we were talking before, but everything there that's evoking a famous image, whether it's being recreated in some way is so excellently done and you know what they're going for and it works in each case. And it's like, yeah, there's just a series of really beautiful reveals in that montage that all hit like, no, that just a plus that sequence. Yeah. Um, and I think sort of going off of that, I think with the glaring exception of hallelujah, I think music is used really well in this movie. I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of wish there were was more like, chances taken. I feel like the music's a lot like on the nose. It's a nose. little on the nose. Yeah. And in, in, in a way that I don't always love, like Times Era Changing is really great, but a lot of it is just like, what's the exact song that you would guess would be played right here? That's what we're going to play. Sound of Silence. Yeah. <laughs> like just that kind of... 99 Luff Balloons. Yeah. So it's a little, you know, just... It is a little, I don't know. I like, but it does, on the nose is a correct thing. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like, yeah, we're we're going to play all along the watchtower when our heroes are flying to a giant watchtower. I don't know. It's just. <laughs> yeah. All right. So they're batting about 400, which is a Hall of Fame average. I just want to point yeah. that out. No, there. and it's when it works, it works. But I just I can't I can't rubber stamp the music because there's That's a few. Okay. I'll, I'll concede that one to you. Yeah. yeah. You, you might have a point. there. There's some needle drops that I roll my eyes. at. <laughs> yeah. Hard. Uh, but yeah, um, what else? oh, I just, look, this is a silver lining for me and I know he's come up before and, you know, we had a lot of fun on the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, talking about Alan Moore and, you know, as we mentioned on that show, which go back and listen to that if you haven't, if you like Alan Moore, cause we, we, we dove deep into his feelings about adaptations of his work, uh, but he, you know, I, I think we said this before, but he refused to put his name on this. He does not take any... Uh, credit for this adaptation dave gibbons the artist loves it and made the poster for the movie and visited the set and is super enthusiastic about this but alan moore hates it he hates every adaptation of his work but as always there's i knew there would be a golden alan moore quote about the movie and i found it he did an interview with la times hero complex when the movie came out and he said i find film in its modern form to be quite bullying it spoon feeds us, which has the effect of watering down our collective cultural imagination. It is as if we're freshly hatched birds, looking up with our mouths open, waiting for Hollywood to feed us more regurgitated worms. The Watchmen film sounds like more regurgitated worms. I, for one, am sick of worms. <laughs> That's he's the amazing. Best. He's the best. He's oh, a, what a great kooky old wizard. He's yeah, no, he just wants to live in England and hate everyone's versions of his work. And it, what I love, I love it about Zack Snyder and I love it about Damon Lindelof that everybody thinks they're like, no, but he might like my ver he won't. It doesn't matter what you do. He's not going to enjoy your adaptation of his work. I promise you. Yes, you could somehow draw whatever vision is in his the deepest recesses of his souls for what a Watchmen movie would look like, <laughs> and, and actually make that. And he'd be like, "No, yeah, you could just like it. You could sell a reprint of the comic. Just be like, we did a new version, and you'd be like, oh, no, the pages are wrong. It's too yes. glossy." You didn't get the ink. The right. colors are too faded. I just don't think it's it's what I want it to be. No, dude's amazing, and uh, I He's hope wild. 
I hope we do. We need to do from hell and every other Hollywood adaptation because I want to find what he said about each movie that's been made from his work. Yeah. Yeah. That's that in and of itself is, is such a silver lining. Um, a hundred percent. I think we did it. I, I think we did it. Uh, you know, yeah, we, we did it and we did a month of Zack Snyder films. Do you feel it changed? Did it, did it affect the way that you view a Zack Snyder? I think I like him more now, but I, I still don't like that, his movies. I was going to say that. I, I think I, I think I appreciate him more. I, it's nice to see that he's a beloved, like people really liked him that have worked with them. And I, I appreciate him more. Like I, I see the the work i say he really cares about movies he really has a vision yeah. for movies it's just not i i don't particularly tend to enjoy his movies but i i i like him i like this Zack snyder and i'll be honest his dead zombie show he's making for netflix looks kind of cool i'll probably end up watching that yeah i mean I, he's one of those people that like even though i know i'm probably not gonna like what he does i'll still probably give it a shot yeah, and there's usually, you know, this I think this month was a good reminder of the fact that there is always going to be something in his movies that's great. Every single one of these movies hasn't just had because look, we've done a lot of silver linings for a lot of movies and some some weeks I'm going to let you guys in on a secret. Some weeks we're kind of pushing it. Like we're, we're trying reaching. to find something in it and we're sitting there like ah, the costumes are nice, but there has sincerely been in every single week some a, a sequence that in and of itself, I would show it's to legit someone. legit great filmmaking. Yeah, I would show to someone and be like, watch this, it's good. Like, he he produces at least one amazing scene in every movie. And yeah, dude, dude it's fun. I, I like Snyder. I, you know, I, I, this was a fun month. I hope I hope fans of Zack Snyder, uh, you know, I don't know, send your pitchforks and yeah, uh, whatever towards us, but... You can find Joel Murphy at 123 Fake Street. Yeah. And Andy lives next door. So he's at uh, 124 Fake Street. We live right across right. Uh, the street from each other. So Yep. And that's any town USA if you're... Right. Wondering. Yeah. 00001. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or uh, if that doesn't work, if for some reason those letters get returned, just mail them to Santa Claus Care of the North Pole. Yep. And we'll get them. Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. How many times has this happened to you? I just want to listen to a podcast. I can't choose from all these complicated structures and setups. You want to listen, not think. That's why... There's Hobo Radio. You'll feel like the smartest guy in the room in a room by yourself. This doesn't take any intellectual thinking at all. Thanks, Hobo Radio. Hobo Radio, a weekly podcast on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network.